This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We're talking about home assessments on the show today. More than a million residential properties across Metro Vancouver now getting the property assessments and values are down of what officials are calling moderation in home values, many condo values down, condo values in Surrey down about 5%. Uh, also seeing property values down in Burnaby, New West. Here's the hot question of the day. Greater Vancouver has seen property values fall as much as 15%, according to these new BC assessment figures. I wonder if you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, or if you want to see property values go up or down and if you want to see them go down how much further do you think they should go down a lot of people think this is a distorted overpriced market so maybe you think this is a good thing to see home values go down so here's your hot question today which direction would you like to see property values go in over the next five years do you want to see property values go up over the next five years or are you hoping to see this continuing trend of a decrease so would you say a zero to ten percent decrease or you want an even bigger decrease, maybe between 10 and 20% or even more than 20% decrease in home values. What would you like to see over the next five years? Here's how you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find it. At CKNW. While you're there, give me a follow at Mike Smith News. Uh, Smith spelled with a Y. S-M-Y-T-H at Mike Smith News. Phone me on the buzz line in this one. Leave me a voicemail, 604-331-BUZZ is the number, 604-331-2899. And send me an email, mike at cknw.com. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk about those home assessments out now in Metro Vancouver. More than 1 million residential property owners now getting those assessments in the mail. And the word being used by officials is moderation in home values. We're seeing some home values go down in these property assessments across Metro Vancouver. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? We had seen a runaway market, a distorted, unaffordable market in the past. The government brought in a lot of measures to kind of cool off that housing market. The government today saying this is a good thing. This is kind of what we wanted to see, a moderation in values. Have a listen to this. This is Tina Arland. She is with the BC Assessment Authority speaking earlier today to Simi Sarah on CKNW Mornings. Those significant increases that we've seen in past years are really just that. They're really a thing of the past now. So this year we're seeing much more moderate changes and even some declines in, in market value. So, and that's based off our evaluation date, which is July 1st, 2019. Would you say those overall... changes really depend on where you live? Oh, okay. Can you explain that a little bit more? I would say that uh, the Metro Vancouver or the Greater Vancouver area is experiencing the more clearer signs of a softening market. So, in say the Greater Vancouver area and even out towards the Fraser Valley, both single-family dwellings and strata units can see their will see their assessments go down anywhere from zero to 15 percent. 
Hmm. Okay. So it sounds like everybody was down. Was there, were there anybody, any areas that went up? Uh, some areas of the province. So once you get outside of the lower mainland, then you'll still see some increases, more moderate than what we've seen in the past, but some increases in some areas. And there were, there was a small park pocket in the lower mainland. So the Squamish, Whistler, Pemberton area, they're still seeing zero to plus 5%. But the biggest drops really are in the core area. So the city of Vancouver, Cor- Coquitlam, uh, West Van Richmond, they're down 10 to 15% over last year's assessment. All right, that's Tina Ireland, BC Assessment Authority, talking about those assessment values down in a lot of the region uh, in home assessments out this week. Let's check in now with Tom Davidoff, economics professor at UBC Souter School of Business. Thomas, nice to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. It's a real pleasure. And I do have to ask, do you always do OPP as the lead-in music, or was it just for this BC assessment? If the latter, I'd really like to congratulate you. <laughs> yeah, okay, a very timely one uh, today. What What is causing this uh, decrease in, in home values that we're seeing reflected in these assessments this week? Well, it's a great question. I think there's uh, easily uh, three factors we can look at. One is a lot of condos are getting completed, and when they get completed, you get some units coming to market, and people might be anticipating a lot of completions uh, coming in the years forward. Uh, the other issue is uh, federal mortgage stress test, still some probably some lingering impacts of reduced affordability because it's harder for lenders to pump out large loans to people who are uh, sort of on the margin of qualification. And uh, the third factor would be uh, local policy. Uh, right. We've had, uh, you know, clampdowns on outside ownership. And, you know, that looks like a pretty good culprit because the top of the market has been performing worse than the bottom. If you thought it was the mortgage stuff, that should be the entry-level homes. But, in fact, uh, over the last year's entry-level homes have performed better than the fancy homes. So I think affluent out-of-town buyers depressing that demands probably had the biggest impact and, and, and concentrated at the top of the market. Yeah, you've seen a lot of government intervention here with uh, taxes and policies, the speculation and vacancy tax, uh, empty homes taxes, all designed to kind of moderate that, especially that offshore speculators, right? I mean, is, is that, are the measures to make Vancouver less attractive for the for speculators, is that working in your mind and what you're seeing here? I think I think it has worked. It hasn't delivered affordability, though, right? right so right. it's worked in the sense that I just don't think there's a lot of people looking to park cash in an empty home in Vancouver. And if they do, and they have to pay tax on it, that's a win for taxpayers because you lose a house uh, that most people can't afford and you make a fortune in taxes. So I think that's worked well. And generally speaking, I think, you know, the NDP and local governments have to be pretty happy. You know, if we get a 10 to 15 percent overall decline uh, and then we have a general flattening of prices, that's, I think, as good as you can hope for. Because, you know, true affordability, a 40, 50 percent decline in prices, you can't have that. That would just be a, an economy killer. So I think, uh, you know, so far, so good. You know, but, but the problem right. we have is the bottom of the market. And the interesting question that I think we have to ask going forward is we've got tens of thousands, I think, still of apartment units yet to complete. You know, you had a big spike peaking around 2018 and starts. And uh, we'll see how the market does both on the ownership side and rental side, absorbing that new inventory. Right. But like you said, though, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to call this market affordable now. I mean, the prices are still unaffordable for a lot of people. And I guess maybe the, the, the market values are not 
as crazy as they were be, they were before. So maybe it's not as not as bad as it was before. It's just maybe less bad, but it's it's still bad for people who can't afford to buy a place. Yeah, you know, rent growth, rents is really, I think, what matters when you think about affordability, because, you know, you care the most, presumably, about people who don't have the incomes and wealth uh, to support ownership. So I think what we can hope is to uh, slow down the rate of rent growth. I think that's been happening the last year or so. Hopefully uh, that keeps up. Home ownership is going to be tricky. You know, uh, this is a great place to live and uh, the world is running out of great places to live. It's a tough place to build homes. We can work on that. Uh, But the other thing is with very low interest rates and rents likely to grow, it just gets really tough to afford a home because it's a very valuable object. Is there any kind of negative economic spinoff from declining home values? Like if people have less equity in their home, does that make them less likely to borrow and spend or renovate homes or or spend money that they've accumulated in this equity that they at least see on paper? So when you see those home values going down, is it any way like bad for the economy? Well, you know, I can tell you, uh, I remember back when I was in California in the mid-2000s, I noticed you know, my income, fortunately, was at the higher end, and I drove probably the least nice car in my zip code. And, uh, you know, I'd say about the same of Vancouver today. I think home equity spending is probably supporting uh, a lot of consumption and yeah. uh, people feeling house rich and with the ability to take cash out is very good. And you see debt cycles. Obviously, the U.S. in the 2000s, the housing market brought everything down. And uh, part, but not all of that, was people using the home as the so-called uh, ATM machine to take cash out and support consumption. So you take that machine away from the economy, of course, you, you lose some construction jobs uh, and you lose some spending. And that is a real risk. Right. right. Speaking of Tom Davidoff from UBC about the uh, home assessments that we see out this week, what do you think then is, is kind of a, a desirable direction for this market to head in? I mean, what kind of balance do you think is good? Are we sort of at the right balance we're looking for? Because there were some fears early on that what the government wanted to do here, they didn't want to pop the balloon and have market housing markets uh, prices crash. They want to kind of let the air out of the balloon a little slowly, right? It's And it sort of seems like maybe they've accomplished that. So do you think we're heading in the right direction? Yeah, you know, I don't think they want to be dancing in the end zone yet because <laughs> I don't think they've quite gotten there. Uh, both in the terms of, you know, we haven't really delivered affordability and uh, there's still the risk of a crash. But I think this is this sort of depression in prices, a little dip, that is to say. Uh, and, and, and the market seems to have calmed down, by the way. You know, these assessments yeah. were as of July. Things have right. picked up a little bit. Yeah. So uh, I think we're in pretty balanced shape for most segments of the market. I think, again, this is really as good of an outcome as uh, the NDT could have hoped for. Uh, when they took power, but we'll see how it goes moving forward. Well, I think you made a good point there that these are assessed values as of July. So I remember I spoke to a a housing guy, a real estate guy the other day who said, looking back at the year 2019, the first part of the year was terrible for in the real estate market if you're selling homes, but prices started have started to pick up here later in the year. So what do you sort of see into 2020, if we look ahead to this year that we're in now, are prices going to start to go back up now? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, there's two big uncertainties, one of which I mentioned, the condo market, where you have a horse race between, you know, still a lot of millennial household formations, super low interest rates, and a ton of immigrants 
uh, coming to Canada every year, many of whom would like to live in Vancouver. You've got that real source of demand. On the other hand, you've got these tens of thousands of completions. They're all pre-purchased. Uh, but there's a lot of investors who are going to look to rent uh, or sell another unit or sell these units. So that'll be very interesting to watch whether the condo market stays strong. The other interesting part of the market to me is the uh, sort of super luxury stuff. You know, these homes that we're selling for $18 million, very likely to overseas buyers, uh, that market being fairly dead, w- what price <laughs> will locals pay? Uh, for those, uh, you know, luxury mansions in the British properties. I really don't know the answer, and it'll be interesting to see where things level out in that segment. All right, thanks for coming on. Hey, real pleasure. Thank you for having I, I, me. You bet. I appreciate it. That is Professor Tom Davidoff. He's an economics prof at UBC's Souders School of Business. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi, calling all condo owners now. It's time to talk condos, including soaring insurance costs for condo owners and rising deductibles as well, which can really hit you in the wallet as well. That's one of the big stories for condo owners in 2020. Lots of other condo issues out there too. Got a great guest for you, Tony Joventu. He's the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Hiya, Tony. Happy New Year, Mike. Happy New Year to you too. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's talk about those insurance premiums, right? First of all, those are way up, right? Yeah, well, we kind of had an indication earlier last year this was going to happen. And then we started seeing the renewals in October to December, where the policy amounts were doubling, tripling, and and even in some scary cases, quadrupling. Wow. So we were, yeah, so a high rise building that was paying, you know, 70 or 80,000 for their annual insurance suddenly got the renewals to discover that their insurance this year is costing them over 200,000. So huge impact um, on the pocketbook. Why Why is that happening? I mean, what's the justification for these sharp increases? Well, if you look closely at the industry, what happens is everybody deals with an insurance broker. Um, right. And so these are the, you know, the, the people who go out and buy your insurance for you. Um, and so they go to the insurance market and we have insurance companies like Lloyd's of London and reinsurers who basically set the rates and the risks Um, pretty much on a worldwide basis for insurance. So the brokers have discovered in the last year or two that the number of companies providing condo insurance in not only British Columbia, but Ontario and other large metropolitan areas have really reduced because the risks on claims have substantially increased. And so, you know, the problem Mm. is you live in a single family house. If your house floods, there's only one house affected. But if you're in a high rise unit and you're in the penthouse and you have a flood near unit, chances are you might flood out five, 10 or more units. And then the damages compounded are just so much higher. Okay. How does the, that's the struggle everybody's been dealing with. How does this hit individual unit owners? Does this result in increased fees? Yeah. Well, the monthly strata fees in a lot of these buildings where there've been increases have probably gone up 30 or 40% just to cover the cost of the insurance increase. But that's just the cost of the insurance. The other problem, though, as you mentioned earlier, is we've got suddenly this huge rise in deductible rates. So, you know, you had a flood in your unit, your bathtub overflowed or your washing machine or, you know, you were somehow responsible for it. Historically, you could rely maybe that your deductible for your building was 10 or even worse, $25,000. 
that was something that you could potentially reinsure for on your own homeowner policy. But the bigger problem is now that the deductibles, especially on buildings that are high risk uh, because they've had a lot of claims, they're old and they're not maintaining their buildings, or they're incredibly high value. The insurance companies are saying, okay, we'll insure you, but we're going to put your deductible at 100000 250 oh. 250,000, or in one case, we've seen so far half a million. Oh my God. You get a, you get a flood. It could bankrupt you. Well, there's two problems to it. The first problem is you get a flood and suddenly your contingency reserve funds you've been saving for major repairs are going to be going to be paying these massive deductibles, which is just counterproductive. It, you know, it puts everybody way behind the eight ball wondering how they're going to pay their future bills. But the other problem is, if, let's say, seven units are damaged and you have a $100,000 deductible, but the total amount of claims is below that deductible, then that's not an claim on the strata insurance. And each owner is responsible for the damages to their own units. Right. And that's, wow. that's the other side of this, that, you know, individual owners as the consumer, you know, not only strata fees, but, hey, wait a minute, I might actually be paying for the damages to my unit, even though I didn't cause those damages. And wow, that's that's, um, that's a that's a big side. one. Where do you, what can you guys do about that? I mean, can you fight these insurance companies or shop around for better rates or can, government intervention? Oh, well, what can be done? You know what? Every everyone is shopping everywhere for the best yeah. rates possible. I think I think government intervention will look like some modifications to our insurance um, regulations under the Strata Property Act. Maybe maybe layering and dividing the liabilities up a little bit more between individual suites and the corporation. That might make this a little better. But, you know, no matter what wow. you do, it's a domino effect because you just simply pass the liability and the cost down onto somebody else's shoulders, right? So it, and some- it's, a, it's a free market industry, right? And that's the other problem we have with insurance. We don't, it's not yeah. the ICBC model where the government sets rates based on risk, based on profit. This is a worldwide free market, which, you know, when people buy and sell policies, it's no different than trading stocks, right. because at the end of the year, it's the profits that end up going to the shareholders. So same problem that we have. Speaking to Tony Joventu from the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, you do a really good job, I think, standing up for condo owners and, and informing them. What are some of the more common kind of questions you get from condo owners about things like strata rules and fees and that kind of stuff? Well, it's the usual, can we rent our unit, our dog right. permit, those kind of things. Those are the normal kind of lifestyle housekeeping things. Um, the other thing we've noticed there's a bit more of, and I think this is another symptom of the extremely high value of property. Um, the other thing we've noticed more of is we've seen buildings where there's um, a, an increased level of claims in the buildings because they have individuals living in the buildings who should not be living independently. And they're leaving the units and leaving bathtubs running or there are fires in kitchens. And, you know, we have two or three target buildings that we've been working with where they've had more than three claims each last year. And every one of them was purely the forgetfulness of an aging population. I hate to say it. And so, you know, we're we're starting to see some other issues that are starting to rise that, you know, that the the strata councils and the property managers are, are really trying to deal with this. And the difficulty is... You know, nobody wants to um, to intervene and deal with these problems, but these are becoming very realistic problems with an aging population. What about those rules on rentals you mentioned? That's one of the key ones people wonder about. I mean, are, are those rules, if you can rent out a condo, is that set by individual stratas and individual buildings? 
Yeah, each building, uh, pre-2010, each building could set um, a limit on the number or the percentage of rentals or even prohibit them outright. Um, and it's interesting because that's been a real debate as to whether those types of buildings were causing um, accessibility problems or rental availability problems. And it turns out that those buildings have the highest occupancy rates, um, mainly because people can't rent them, they live in them. And so we're seeing occupancy rates in those buildings that are in a, that exceed 97%. Um, whereas buildings post-2010, owner-developers adopted rental exemptions under a rental disclosure. Very few, if any, of those buildings have any rental bylaws, and those buildings have the highest vacancy rates, as high as 35 or 40%. A lot of it has to do with just investment, um, just investment holding buildings. Uh, and so that's, that's where we have some of our more challenging vacancy problems for housing. Meredith in Vancouver, hi. Hey, <clears throat> happy new year. Same to you. Um, this is interesting. Insurance has changed for stratas. Um, it used to be, uh, for my building anyways, that anything within my drywall and into my suite is what I would be responsible for. But now, common um, anything that is, isn't a common pipe and it goes directly to uh, someone's unit, they have to cover repairing that. So the fellow above me had a toilet flange, I believe they call it, leak and it's definitely his pipe so he's going to be responsible for the repairs to his pipe and that but unfortunately it leaked onto my ceiling mm. so I'm wondering I, I, I was ill and I, I don't have insurance but um, that's all right because it, <clears throat> it all works out in the end. How much, how much damage was done to your place? I haven't had an estimate because the property managers keep saying he'll fix it and they can't get a hold of him. But oh. I would say I would say maybe twelve hundred bucks. Right? Oh, okay. Tony, can she get any money from that other owner? Uh, possibly, if the owner um, had neglected this. But if it's just a toilet tank, a toilet seal, is it the seal of the toilet or the tank itself? Oh no, no, it's um, the seal. No, it's not the seal. It's below that, in between the. Underneath the, his floor is like a, a, a toilet. Does that make flange. a di- Does that make a difference? Yeah, it does yes. because I, I'm not sure who's given you information, but we'd have to look at your strata plan and your bylaws. But I'm going to hazard a guess that it's a pretty good chance that's common property, and that was the strata's no. responsibility to repair that. That that has okay. not changed. No, Those no, no. Have not I know that's not true because the same thing happened to me before. There was a pipe mm. that was a common pipe. And then they paid for mine, but okay. even the plumber—it's—it's it's definitely his pipe. It goes from his toilet to the common pipe. Okay, yeah, okay. You know, that, that's very possibly common property. I, we want to look at that closely, but I would—I okay. would say it's ninety-nine percent sure. But yeah, can you get your cost back from an owner? Possibly, but this is a maintenance issue more than anything. So there, it's unlikely you would be able to do that. Okay, Meredith, thank thank you for the call. Good luck with it, Paul and Burnaby. Hi. I have a question about, uh, I'm in a strata of building townhouses that, uh, uh, it's building 30 years old and the strata, the council's looking into, uh, replacing the aluminum frame windows with vinyl framed windows. But the thing is, I don't think we'll ever recover the energy savings and is it really worth it? Hmm. And, uh, I guess, you know, the government's pushing all these, you know, replace your windows, these rebates, but those windows with the rebates are really expensive. So, so you're wondering, do you have to go along with it on your unit, you mean? 
Well, I know you have to go along with it if they vote, yeah. if they voted in. But the thing is, yeah, your place is windows. What if you don't save enough energy to ever repay the cost of what, Tony. what your share was? Tony. Yeah, I know it's a great question, and I would I would bet that you would probably not ever save enough energy to recover the cost, but that's not the real problem. Aluminum windows were great when they were installed, but the difficulty with them is that they contribute to a lot of condensation within the units because the seals on the frames are not broken. But the other oh, problem okay. is the, the miter joints um, on aluminum windows after a certain age will all fail, and they're going to be a direct cause to water getting into all your wall systems. So getting okay. your getting your getting your windows upgraded to vinyl or fiberglass windows um, has a lot of other okay. benefits that are really well worth it. Let's go to Ursula in Burnaby. Hi. Hello. Hi there. I have a question about renovation. We would like to do a bathroom renovation, and the Strata has an alternation agreement that we have to sign, but they also want to know the name of the contractors. My question is, are we allowed to do anything on our own without the contractors? Okay. Tony? So when you live in a strata building, the principal rule is your home is not your castle. So mm -hmm. anything that you're doing with respect to fixtures, um, removing any or changing any wall assemblies, anything to do with piping or electrical, you need, you, you, A, you need to get the written approval of your strata. They can set whatever reasonable conditions, and that would include your contractors. They may also request before they give you permission a copy of your liability insurance for your contractors, and this is something your insurance company may ask for. Um, uh, alter, you know, upgrading uh, bathrooms and kitchens is a great project in buildings, but it oftentimes results in unforeseen circumstances like changes in acoustics, which result in noise to other units um, or changes in plumbing if they're not if it's not done correctly which results in backups to other units so um, you know you're going to want to make sure that all of your trades are certified your strata council is approved and you need to check to see the scope of work with the city to see if you need any what if, for any what if she wants what you know what if she's real handy and she wants to like do a do-it-yourself project is that allowed typically no because the same oh. conditions are going to apply and okay. so they, you know, so do it yourself projects we've discovered in most strata buildings are all the, the best recipe for a disaster in most cases. Okay. We're running out of time. G key in North van. Hi. G G key. Guess he's not there. How about Reg in Maple Ridge? Hi there. Hi Reg. You got a minute left. Go ahead. Yeah, okay, quickly, a uh, uh, question for Tony. Tony, uh, I live in a condominium project, and I'm wondering if there's anything in the Strata Property Act that doesn't permit owners to exchange parking spots. Uh, every Strata, when it comes to parking and storage lockers, is created differently. So we would have to look at your bylaws, your strata plan, um, any of the developer documents, and see how those designations were created and then give you an answer. And the problem is, with 32,000 strata corporations in B.C., no two of them are the same. Reg, thank you for the call. Uh, Tony, thanks a lot for coming on. Have you got a website people can check out if they're looking for more info? Yeah, so it's www choa.bc.ca and we have two community forums in the lower mainland on insurance in february if people want to sign up for those those are free of charge and they can probably get a lot of insurance value out of that okay great tony thanks for coming on thanks a lot mike science science science
Now, Science with Simi. Eureka! All right, this is Mike Smith in for Simi. A new study finds that loss of sleep prematurely ages immune cells in your brain, and that can cause all sorts of cognitive problems, including dementia as you get older. Simi Sarah Show contributor Claire Allen has more. How many hours of sleep do you get each night? According to medical professionals, adults 26 to 64 years old need 7 to 9 hours of sleep each night, while adults 65 and older need 7 to 8 hours of sleep each night. If you're hearing these numbers and realizing that you're not meeting those marks, you may want to listen to this. According to new research from the University of Toronto, people who wake up repeatedly instead of sleeping soundly are more likely to develop Alzheimer's. Dr. Andrew Lim is an associate professor of neurology at the University of Toronto and a neurologist at Sunnybrook Hospital. What we showed in this particular study is that adults who sleep poorly, in particular adults who wake up very frequently at night, have evidence of dysfunction of the immune cells of the brain, so-called microglia. Uh, the importance of this is that the microglia, when they're behaving normally, play an important role in fighting infection in the brain. Uh, but when they behave abnormally and when they become abnormally activated, they appear to play an important role in increasing the likelihood of dementia. Uh, and indeed, that's basically what we found, which is that these individuals who slept poorly had abnormally activated microglia, so, which were um, also appeared to be aged or, or older in the way that they appear from a gene expression perspective. Uh, and then this in turn was associated with poorer cognitive performance. So these same adults who slept poorly had the activated microglia, and then when we tested their cognitive performance, their memory, their concentration, their ability to solve uh, uh, cognitive problems, they performed more poorly. Dr. Lim's research found that because bad sleep speeds up the aging of brain cells, this could lead to cognitive problems associated with thinking and memory. When you disrupt sleep, the two things seem to happen to the cells. Uh, one, they seem to age prematurely. Uh, so when you, you, when you take a look at the cells from a gene expression perspective and take a look at the genes that they're expressing, uh, there are certain genes that are characteristic of old microglia and certain genes that are characteristic of young, healthy microglia. Uh, so when you sleep poorly, uh, the microglia express uh, genes that are more of the sort that you would expect uh, in older, unhealthy microglia than in young, healthy microglia. The microglia also, when you look at them under the microscope, appear to be abnormally activated. So they look to be the sort of microglia you would expect in the context of an infection, for instance, rather than the resting uh, microglia you would expect in the healthy state. As for how Dr. Lim and his colleagues studied this issue, well, it's pretty cool. So what we did is we took several hundred older uh, adults uh, and we measured their sleep using these like Fitbit-like accelerometers, these wristwatch devices that are very much like Fitbits. Um, so we did this every year. And then every year, we also had uh, these participants uh, complete a series of cognitive tests. So like tests of memory, for instance, one test uh, would be is uh, we would have them uh, remember, for instance, like a telephone number, like a 10-digit number, and be able to recite it back to us. We would test the memory, memory for words, uh, ability to solve uh, puzzles, and we do this annually. Uh, and then when these participants died, uh, they donated their brains, uh, and we were able to take a look under the microscope at the microglia directly. Uh, and then we were also able to take a look at microglial gene expression. According to statistics, 30 to 40% of older adults have reported insomnia or some other sort of sleep problem. So this research is quite significant. 
it's, it's important for two reasons. I mean, one, and we all know uh, that Alzheimer's disease and other causes of dementia are becoming an, an increasing problem. Uh, so as we live longer, we're more and more likely to develop this, uh, so much so that, that uh, I think Alzheimer's disease is already uh, one of the leading causes of death, for instance, in North America. Uh, and we really need to figure out ways to prevent that. Uh, it turns out that sleep problems are also extremely common. Uh, so sleep disorders like sleep apnea affect up to a quarter to a third uh, of older adults. Uh, insomnia also affects almost a third of older adults. Um, so as these sleep problems are very, very common uh, as well. And, uh, and, and it may turn out, as some of our research is showing, that, these sleep, you know, that, that problem number one, the sleep problem, may be contributing, in fact, to problem number two, uh, the, the, uh, the increased incidence of Alzheimer's uh, disease. I mean, what this means, I think, from a clinical perspective uh, and from a personal perspective is it's very easy as we get older uh, to just accept poor sleep as being a part of aging uh, and, and sort of not really pursue it. So you say, you know, look, I, you know, I wake up multiple times a night now. I didn't used to, but that's just kind of the way things are. Uh, or, you know, I, I need to nap now in a way that perhaps you didn't used to before. Uh, and then people will accept that as being just a part of aging, uh, when, when in fact this may be a sign of, of, of something uh, that needs to be dealt with and that might in fact be contributing to an increased risk of uh, Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Lim says that his research did not look at if getting better sleep would help repair the damage done to the brain by a chronic lack of sleep. That's kind of the million-dollar question, uh, is whether improving sleep can in fact reverse some of these changes. Um, so what we really need to do is we need to do uh, a couple of things. We need studies in younger people, uh, of, of the microglia in younger people. It's tricky because it's very hard to assess the microglia in sort of living, healthy participants. There are ways to do so, uh, but, but it's not so uh, straightforward. But I think we need to do these studies in younger people uh, to try and understand whether the sleep fragmentation that you, know, you or I are experiencing right now is having the same effect as sleep fragmentation that we get when we're 70 or 80 uh, years old. Uh, and then we, we also really need to do uh, treatment studies. So, so studies of uh, treatments uh, of, for instance, sleep disorders like sleep apnea or treatment of insomnia uh, to, to see if, if uh, fixing sleep can, in fact, have a positive impact on these, uh, on these measures of brain health. So if you're having issues sleeping, this should serve as a wake-up call for you. So, I mean, if you go to bed at night and wake up, you know, seven or eight hours later and have no difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep and you have all the energy you want during the day, then you probably don't need to see your doctor about your sleep. Your sleep is probably fine. But if you do have problems uh, falling asleep uh, or staying asleep, if you do find uh, that your energy levels have, have changed compared to the way they were before, I think these are good reasons to speak to your family doctor to ask whether there's something that there that needs to be fixed. For AM 980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. This is Mike Smith filling in for Semi. We're finding out more now about that wild story from overnight in Surrey about the joyride on the bus. It happened around 2 a.m., a bus driver taking a washroom break. Somebody hopped on board his bus stole the vehicle, just took off. Clint Hampton is a sergeant and media relations officer with the Metro Vancouver Transit Police. He spoke to our Simi Sarah Show producer, Alan Regan, about the joyride. To begin with, Sergeant Hampton, can you tell me what happened here? Sure. So this happened uh, early early morning. It was around 2 a.m. 
Uh, we had a, uh, a bus at Surrey Central Bus Loop, so uh, it was the N19, and the bus operator had taken a washroom, washroom break. The bus was left running. Uh, when the operator came back out, the bus was gone. Uh, he contacted uh, police. The uh, GPS system on the bus was used to locate it. Um, at that point in time, the bus was around 160th and Fraser Highway. Uh, police were able to pull the bus over at uh, 176 and Fraser Highway, and uh, the suspect was arrested. Now, nobody, no one else was on the bus. Nobody was injured, and uh, fortunately, there was also no damage done to the bus. Can you describe the scene from what your officers have been telling you? When the officers confronted this man, what happened there? Um, I, I don't have a lot of details as far as the, uh, the arrest itself. Uh, this was with the assistance of Surrey RCMP. Um, so they made the initial arrest of the, of the suspect and uh, transit police are now um, completing the investigation. And that route from Surrey Central all the way out the Fraser Highway to where it meets uh, the Pacific Highway there, that's about 15 kilometres if you're taking the most Mm -hmm. direct route. I suppose what sort of concerns spring to mind for you when you think of someone with the malicious intent of stealing a bus and driving a stolen vehicle, when they're driving across Mm -hmm. those kind of distances, what sort of concerns come to mind for you? Well, in particular, not just a vehicle. In this case, we have a bus. Uh, That's the concerning part. Very fortunately, nobody was injured. Um, but you have somebody that, as far as I'm aware, isn't trained at driving a a bus, and the the risk to the public um, is very high. But again, fortunately, um, nobody was injured. And we were talking on the show earlier, you know, who does this? Mm-hmm. Was this guy on something? You know, is impairment forming part of your investigation at this time? Um, I, I, I haven't heard any indication as far as uh, impairment from uh, drug or alcohol. Um, there may be a mental health piece, and that'll be part of the uh, investigation as well. Um, but as far as uh, a motive or anything like that, um, uh, that's, that'll be part of the ongoing investigation. So what next for the suspect here? Are they still in custody, and what sort of charges will you be bringing? Yeah, the the suspect's a 28-year-old man. Uh, He was held in custody. Uh, We are forwarding a charge of theft of a motor vehicle over $5,000. Well, Sergeant Hampton, thank you so much for speaking with us uh, today. No problem. Thanks, Alan. All right. Sergeant Clint Hampton there from the Metro Vancouver Transit Police in conversation with our own Alan Regan. And as you heard there, the guy who took that bus allegedly has now been busted facing a charge of stealing a vehicle worth over $5,000. It'd be way over $5,000 stealing a bus. Not an unprecedented crime. If you just do a little Google search for it on a stolen bus and going for a joyride, you'll find hits all over North America where this kind of stuff happens. But I don't recall a bus being stolen in Vancouver in some time. That's a pretty wild story. Let's give you a weather update here now. Metro Vancouver, not out of the woods yet with some tough weather conditions. Environment Canada warning of heavy rain and possibly some wet snow set to drench the city today through Friday night. Yvonne Shaw is a global news meteorologist. She has more details. It's a storm moving on the south coast, bringing us rain and heavy at times and the potential for some wet snow, especially for higher elevations. 
It picks up this afternoon. The rainfall and intensifies for this evening. The rainfall warning for Metro Vancouver, 16 up to 90 millimeters. This afternoon and early evening, we do have a window where we've got temperatures that are cold enough. There is a pocket that we could see some wet snow in the mix or rain mixed with wet snow, especially for higher elevations and up to four centimeters. We will start to see a shift this evening, warmer temperatures pushing in, and then most areas will see that snow changing back over to rain. Okay, batten down the hatch. It's going to be a wet one here coming up. Let's get a look now on what it means for your travel today. AM 730 traffic anchor Ian Hardacre joins me now. Hi, Ian. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. What's it look like out there? Well, right now it looks okay, but definitely uh, throughout the day we're going to see more precipitation falling. And, of course, that is definitely going to be affecting you uh, as you're driving around the lower mainland. And, unfortunately, at some of the higher elevations, I'm thinking, uh, you know, North Shore, but also maybe even some of the higher areas of Burnaby and New Westminster, uh, maybe parts of, um, you know, the Tri-Cities as well. You might see it uh, get a little bit of wet snow, and it's going to be that kind of slushy, slippery wet snow. Yeah, nobody ever likes to see that. So it's definitely something that you're going to want to be aware of as you're driving around. Of course, uh, you've heard this before. You're going to want to make sure you slow down, drive according to the conditions. Okay, Ian, do people in this city know how to drive in the snow? I mean, what's your experience when you get a dump (laughs) of snow out there? It keeps you guys busy over there at AM 730. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, it's definitely something that, uh, well, it, it comes down to the individual driver, right? You know, there's yeah. good drivers and there's bad drivers, but you would think <laughs> living in the city that we live in, uh, people would know better, but that's uh, not always the case. The good news, though, is that today we're still kind of on holiday time. So um, it's not like in terms of volume, it's not really going to be like a rush. This morning we had the. Uh, um, morning rush hour, and it wasn't really much of anything. It was pretty, pretty quiet. So most of the main routes were nowhere near as bad. If we're talking about next week and we're getting uh, the same sort of weather, it might end up being a problem. But for now, I think uh, the saving grace is just that there's not going to be all that many people on the roads uh, in the first place. Okay. Snow, of course, is always, I guess, the biggest hazard, but you can also get pooling water, right? Especially if you're going in sort of often uh, bridges and tunnels. Yeah, absolutely. Anywhere where, you know, there's kind of a little uh, divot or dip in the road, that stuff can, and it can sometimes, especially at night, and of course it gets dark at like 4.30 these days, uh, it can be really, really hard to see in some areas. So just uh, do beware of that. Uh, You want to make sure you slow down. Again, I, I, you got to keep harping on that. Just slow down yeah. and, um, and make sure keep you're your very, very careful. And yeah, give yourself lots and lots of stopping distance because, yeah. of course, that's going to be lengthened uh, every time uh, the roads get uh, really, really wet and slippery. Okay, you mentioned we're still kind of in hol- uh, sort of holiday mode here this week, but I guess most people getting back to reality on Monday, back to a regular routine. Do you anticipate sort of normal traffic patterns starting back next week? Yeah, that's going to be a different story from what we've seen this past week. I've already actually today and uh, yesterday seen it start to get a little bit busier, not much busier, but a little bit busier than what it was leading up to New Year's Day. And probably on Monday, we're going to be pretty much right back at its full force. I mean, there's probably going to be a few people who still get another few days of vacation time. But I would say the vast majority of regular commuters are going to be back at it Monday morning. So uh, give yourself lots of time and expect it to be busy all right Ian, thanks for the update no problem anytime oh, mike smith filling in for Simi sarah let's talk about north shore rescue now and this is a group that does absolutely critical work i really got all the time in the world for the volunteers there they give so much of their own time to help people out of dangerous situations in the backcountry. now they also will use 
Rescue Dogs and North Shore Rescue expanding their canine unit now. That's interesting. Let's talk about it now with Ryan Morasowicz. He is a member of North Shore Rescue. Ryan, thanks for coming on. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Ryan, I really appreciate all the work that you guys do over there at North Shore Rescue. Let's talk about the uh, the dogs that you work with. How many dogs are in the canine unit over there right now? Well, at present, we only have one dog that's validated, and she's validated for both wilderness uh, search and rescue and also as an avalanche dog. Uh, we previously had another dog who retired and then unfortunately passed away about a year or so ago. And now we're bringing on, um, hopefully bringing on my dog. Um, I'm just starting in on the process to get him trained and validated as uh, wilderness search and rescue. So at present, just the one dog, but hopefully uh, the next one's coming up pretty soon. Okay, that's pretty exciting. Now, the one dog in the unit there is, uh, as I understand it, Ryan, is Chloe, a a, a four-year-old, a Belgian Malinois. Is that the breed? That's the breed, yes. What what kind of breed is that? I'm not sure you've even heard of that before. It kind of looks like a German Shepherd is probably the best way to describe it. A little smaller, though. Okay, what is a certified search dog? So, for search and rescue in the province here, the civilian search and rescue dogs are part of a group called the BC Search Dog Association. They're a volunteer association that that organizes and certifies the RCMP members who do the actual validation of the search dogs in the province. To be a search dog handler, you have to be a member of one of the search and rescue teams in the province. And I think the, the standard is you have to be a member for at least two years, if not more. And most of the search dog handlers are many multi-year, if not decade, veterans of their local search and rescue team. So to start, you have to be a search and rescue member generally. And then if you want to have a search dog, you have to obviously you know, acquire one and train it. And the training is, bo- is mostly on your own or with other handlers if there's anybody close to you. And then twice a year, there are camps that the Search Dog Association puts on where there's further training and assessment and validation uh, throughout the process for the dogs. Okay, cool. Ryan, let's talk about the dog you're working with now. What's what's is a two-year-old German Shepherd, I understand. What's his name? That's correct. His name is Nico. Nico. Okay. Nico has an interesting background because Nico was, uh, was it true he was originally going to be a police dog? That's correct. He was actually going to be the replacement uh, dog for his father, who's, uh, who is, or I guess was, a searched, or sorry, an RCMP dog uh, with, uh, with his handler up in Squamish. So he was going to be the replacement for his father, and um, he got about a year to a year and a half through the RCMP training. And then they realized that uh, he just wasn't meeting all of their, their needs. Uh, specifically, he was just too friendly for the police work. <laughs> and um, yeah. so his handler realized throughout this process and the training that he had gone through that he had an excellent nose and he really enjoyed searching. So she put out a call to the, the Search Dog Association and the Avalanche people basically saying, you know, we've I've got this great dog here, he's got a good nose, and I want him to go to one of the civilian partner agencies, if possible, to, to see if he can continue on with that work. And because I know a number of people in those organizations, I was fortunate to have that email forwarded to me. They, they knew my wife and I were looking for a dog. And um, four days later, after that email, uh, Nico shows up in my door. Wow. Okay, it must have been an exciting email for you to receive. It was a very exciting email and just yeah. amazing that, that fortune uh, happened that way and things lined up and we were able to get him. Okay, so Nico, so he washes out of RCMP Police Dog Academy there because 
So what was he doing? He want, wants people to rub his belly or something instead of going after bad guys? Or he's just, he's More just or too less. Friendly? Just, just, yeah. just too friendly, yep. <laughs> too, too friendly. Okay, so he was going to follow in his father's paw prints there and be a police <laughs> dog, but now he's going to be a, a rescue dog with uh, North Shore Search and Rescue. That's, that's pretty cool. Now, um, you mentioned the nose. So I guess, I guess, is that the key thing? I mean, these dogs got to have a real good sense of smell, right? Well, that's exactly it. I mean, dogs in general have a sense of smell that's thousands, if not tens of thousands times better than us. And the way these dogs search is entirely on the air. They're looking for the bite with their nose for the scent of whatever it is, be it a person or an article of clothing or something. And part of what I have to do when I'm training with him is learn to understand how he works, how the scent works, how he can use his nose to find something, and then basically get him in the right position so so he can work his magic and work his nose and find the thing and then bring it back to me. Okay, that's very cool. Now, the fact, though, that Nico was too friendly to be a police dog, I guess that's not a problem for being a search dog with North Shore Rescue? Not a problem whatsoever in the civilian search dog world. In fact, it makes him, uh, I think, even better, quite frankly, because he's okay. got a great personality and a great disposition for us, and he's got an absolutely incredible drive and a love to search. So he's really in his element when he's out there looking for things and given the search command, and you can just tell that he's just going crazy. His tail is wagging, he's sniffing the air, and he's looking for things. Okay, so, and you're, are you training him? That's correct, yeah. So when he was with the RCMP, he had... A good solid base, I guess I'd call it, of the training. But uh, as soon as I got him, I started working on the, the basically taking the raw talent and then refining it as best as I can, both learning his body language and how he works and also just working together to, to further refine and get his search skills uh, further up to speed and up to the validation standard. Okay, that's exciting stuff. I'm, ta- I'm speaking to Ryan Marasowicz from, he's a member of North Shore Rescue, and we're talking about the expansion of the canine unit there with North Shore Rescue, including Nico, the two-year-old German Shepherd uh, that Ryan's training. Is that, is it, a two-year-old dog, is that like a good sort of age to be uh, working with a dog like that? I think it's it's fairly good. I mean, he's still got all of his puppy energy for sure, but he is at the same time a little bit more mature. Uh, yeah. For the Search Dog Association, they generally say to, to start in on that process, and the, the start is very much just a, a puppy assessment. You know, does, does a dog have a bond to the to its handler, does a dog enjoy toys and have a have a desire to both please and to, you know, to play? That process generally starts anywhere between six months and two years or so is when they kind of want the dog to first start in on that process. And then as the dog gets older and you work with the dog more and more, the, the, the skills and the practice evolve from there. How do you train them? Um, at present, um, pretty much every day we work on some obedience skills, the, the things that would be very useful for just being out in the field and increasing our bond together. But the, the meat and potatoes of it is actual search practice. So, you know, I will go out into the wilderness, you know, for an hour or so, placing, you know, probably like five different articles, you know, shirts, boots, whatever, randomly into an area that's, you know, 700 meters by 700 meters or so, so pretty large area. You, you do that for, you know, however long it takes, and then you come back to the dog who's usually in his, in his kennel, in the car, wherever you are, and then you get him, you get him suited up, and then in the theory being you take him downwind to start, and you give him the command to search, and what he's doing, he's not actually searching, or he doesn't want to necessarily search for either people or articles. What he's doing is he knows that when he finds whatever it is that's hidden, and brings it back to me, 
then it's party time or it's playtime. <laughs> I've got I've got the toy, and you know, he gets to, gets to play tug of war with that. He gets tosses of his ball, and he loves to oh. go fetch that and bring it back to me and and back and forth. So basically, he's again he's not necessarily doing this to find the person or find the thing. He's doing it because he knows we're going to have a great time afterwards, and he's going to have a lot of play. <laughs> okay, that's great. And uh, how's it going with Nico so far? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic, but he does really have an incredible nose, and he mm. finds all the things that I put out there for him, and he really loves it. So I, I don't want to get my eggs before they're hatched, but I'm very happy with what he's done so far and how I've seen him evolve over the, only the few months that I've had him so far. And mm. I think things are looking good for the next year or so, and uh, fingers crossed that I'll do it. How long does it typically take to, to train up a dog to become certified? I think it depends on the dog and depends on the person as well. Certainly for me, being a first-time handler, I think it would probably take longer than someone who's already trained a dog up to a sta- up to that search standard in the past. Yeah. I think they generally say it's about two years within the search dog program that it will take to get the dog up to the validation standard. I'm hoping it'll be a little quicker for me just with the uh, the base train that he already had before I got him with the RCMP and given his drive and his personality. Okay, so this is kind of a new thing for you, too. It's like, is this the first dog you've trained? It's not, not the first dog I've ever had, for sure, but definitely uh-huh. the first dog I've ever trained on the search side of things. Wow, wow. How did you get involved in that yourself? I mean, did you have to get training yourself in how to work with these dogs? No specific training myself. Um, I've known fairly well two search dog handlers, both from North Shore Rescue in the past, and right. with Chloe that you had mentioned before. I've known her since she was basically a puppy, and I helped her her uh, handler train her a little bit uh, when she was, again, just a puppy. You know, I'd be the one that would go hide in the wilderness, and then she'd run up to me, and then I'd, you know, play with her so she could be encouraged to uh, to know that there's a good time to be had and good play happening when she goes find someone in the wilderness. Right. right. And then what can these dogs do, Ryan, once they're trained up and they're certified? Like, can they find people who are lost, maybe someone who's buried in an avalanche, anything like that? Yeah, so I mean, it, it depends on the on the what they're validated for. So avalanche dogs are a different subset, um, different validation and a different organization. But certainly, there are some dogs that are validated, just like Chloe, for both avalanche and wilderness search. On the wilderness side of things, in particular, they're of a great help for search and rescue teams, especially when they're looking for a subject who might be unresponsive, mm-hmm. unconscious, or or whatnot. Because in a situation like that, as a search and rescue team. If, you, if you're looking for someone who can't respond to your voice calls, it's exponentially harder to find them. You basically have to get people almost shoulder to shoulder or within visual range and basically form a line and then just go in a straight line looking for someone who's, right. uh, who's unresponsive. And you can imagine even for a small area, the amount of manpower and the amount of time that would take. In a situation like that, you could bring in a search dog and you know, what would otherwise take 20 or 30 people hours you know, a validated search dog could cover off that area and either tell you, yes, there's someone here or no, there's someone not here, right. would probably do that in 20 minutes. So it, it certainly frees up a lot of resources for the team and it allows certain search areas to be covered and checked off as it's clear there's nobody here. You can concentrate your resources somewhere else. Wow, that's amazing. So that's, what an awesome asset to have for, for North Shore Rescue, for sure. Like, and So mm-hmm. for the, the one dog that you have there, uh, the certified dog that is in service right now, Chloe, uh, has has Chloe been able to like find people or help rescue people or what's what's her record been like? I don't believe she's got a live find yet, but it's only a matter okay. of time because just mm. like Nico, she's got one heck of an incredible nose and one heck of a great drive. 
Okay, how are, how's everything going on North Shore Rescue these days? And uh, the, we've already had a few incidents uh, this, this season, have we not? Yeah, I think there was multiple calls on New Year's Day. I'm not sure yeah. off the top of my head. And I know last year it wasn't quite up to the record standard. The record was the year before last, 2018. I think we had 144 calls. I know this last year in 2019, it wasn't quite that high. Not sure offhand. I don't think I've seen the final accounts, but it was definitely a little quieter. So here's hoping that the, the, the education and the BC Adventure Smart uh, type of message has been getting out to the population. And uh, hopefully things will be quieter for us in the future. But who knows? And even if they're not, we're always going to be there and ready to do it. Ryan, may I just say thank you for your service there with North Shore Rescue. I really admire the people who volunteer to help people who are in trouble in the wilderness. It's absolutely essential service, and you guys do an awesome job there. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you for coming on, and good luck with Nico. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Back, Mike Smith in for semi. Let's talk a little hockey now. The World Juniors underway in the Czech Republic. Now, I know there are some people out there who like to PVR these games in the morning and watch them when you get home. So Canada was playing in the semifinals today, or or the quarterfinals, I guess. And if you don't want to know the outcome of the game, you better put your hands over your ears right now because we're going to spoil it for you. Uh, Barry Delay, Global BC Sports Anchor, is here. How are you, Barry? How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. And it was the quarterfinals, right? Quarterfinals? It was the quarterfinal. Yeah. Yes, that's okay. right. Yeah, semifinal will go Saturday. Gold medal Sunday, hopefully, for Canada. Okay. So who are we? who is Canada playing today in the quarters? Uh, Slovakia. So uh, right. you know, Canada had uh, three and one during the round robin, so they finished first in their pool. So they got a, a pretty favorable quarterfinal, pretty comfortable game for them. Uh, they uh, didn't start well for them. Nolan Foote, who's the uh, son of NHL or former NHL or Adam Foote, plays for Kelowna Rockets, got a five-minute penalty for a hit to the head, which was probably a really bad call. But uh, Canada killed off the major and then uh, went on to an easy 6-1 win. So a nice, oh. comfortable win for them. And uh, they're on to the semifinals now. They'll play Finland uh, on Saturday. So uh, it's going well right now. And, you know, They obviously had that tough loss against the yeah. Russians, 6 nothing. But in this tournament... You know, timing's everything. If you're going to have a horrible game, have it during the round robin when, uh, you know, you can make up for it later. You don't want to, you know, lay your egg during the quarterfinals or the, yeah. or the semifinals <laughs> when if you lose, you're done. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it worked out well for them. Yeah, best that we got that stinker out of the way here. And now when we're playing for all the marbles here, this is good. So Canada wins 6-1 to one over Slovakia today. They move on to the semifinals. You mentioned that one of their star players was uh, got a game misconduct there early in the game. For was it a? Uh, did you say it was a helmet shot or a headshot or something? Well, or? well, yeah. I mean, I saw the play. Um, you know, Nolan Foot's a big guy, about six yeah. two or three, and he went in on the four check, and the uh, Slovakian player kind of ducked and turned, and uh, it, you know, it certainly wasn't a. You know, he hit the the kid, and it may have. Uh, the whole idea of that is is the initial point of contact to the head. Well, it was close, mm-hmm. and the other thing is the kid was bent down, so he was you know maybe three feet off the ice. Your head is obviously a lot higher than that if you're standing straight up. So it wasn't anything. I don't think Nolan Foot could avoid. It wasn't a dirty play by any stretch. The thing is, with uh, you know, you never know though in the IHF what decisions they're going to make. So. Uh, usually that does come with a one-game suspension, but they will look at the video and often overturn it if they feel they made a mistake. 
it's obvious this should be overturned, but as uh, anyone who's followed international hockey before knows, you never know. Uh, and he's a really good player. He's got a, a great shot. He was a first-round draft pick last year, and yeah. uh, he's a key guy for them. But the other good news for Canada is they got uh, Alexi Lafreniere, who's a, a big star out of the Quebec uh, Junior League and is considered the consensus number one pick at the draft this year. He's a just a dynamic player. He hurt his knee badly in that Russian game. It looked like he would be gone for the tournament, maybe longer, but right. he'd only missed two games, came back today, looked fantastic, had a goal and an assist. So really oh. good news on a lot of fronts for Canada. They got their star back. And, uh, you know, they look like they've kind of, you know, as we mentioned, they got their stinker out of the way early. And uh, it's going to be a lot tougher from here on in. Slovakia, uh, you know, is certainly a weaker team. And Canada really dominated them. But they did play some, you know, some tough teams early. They beat the U.S. 6-4. The tough, you know, against the Russians, they looked awful. But in their last three games, they've won 7-2 over the Czechs, 4-1 over the Germans, and now 6-1. So they're, they're rolling now. It's going to be a lot tougher against the Finns who upset the Americans one nothing. The Finns last year at the World Juniors here in Vancouver stunned Canada 2-1. And then won an OT in Canada, didn't even get to the medal round. So here's a chance for uh, a little revenge. But the Finns are always tough, very tough mm. team to play. They make you work for everything. So it's going to be a lot closer game uh, on Saturday for Canada. But I, I think they have to like where they are. They, they made a goaltending yeah. change halfway through the tournament this um uh, joel hofer has been in since that six nothing loss to russia and he's been really solid so they, they look like you know, in this tournament it's all about building to to the to the important games and it looks like canada has kind of done that but you know it is sudden death and, and for canada it's gold or nothing so they got to win to get right. to the gold medal game if they lose they got to play for bronze which which they never tend to do very well at because they're so disappointed they're not playing for gold but i think i think this team has a chance to win it Okay, speaking to Global BC Sports anchor Barry Delay about the World Juniors there, Canada wins 6-1 over Slovakia this morning in the quarterfinals. They're through to the semis. That certainly is good news about that star uh, player they got there, Alexi Lafreniere. Uh, this kid, he's great and expected, as you mentioned, to uh, Barry to go first overall in the draft, and he had that injury earlier in the tournament. I just imagine being that kid's agent and seeing him get get injured in a in a junior tournament, I go, oh my goodness, there goes his career. Yeah. But that's scary. But it looked bad when it happened. It did, yeah. It looked really bad. Like he, yeah. it looked like the kind of thing where uh, it's funny. A lot of times these injuries, the ones that don't look bad are the worst. Uh, and yeah. this one, this one, he really struggled with. Uh, but they did the MRIs, and there was no, you know, especially no ligament damage, which is really important for a young player. You don't want to start start your career uh, you know having knee issues because they're hard to, to clean up and and, and uh, get away from but he you know fortunately you know he's a big kind of beefy strong kid but he does everything so well he's a dynamic offensive player but he's one of these guys who, who plays both ends really well and and uh, kind of a lot of Patrice Bergeron kind of comparisons who's a, obviously a star in the NHL right now so he's just uh, he's such a difference maker on the power play. His on ice vision is unbelievable. He set up some beautiful goals. He, he, you know, he finishes well, does everything so well, and he's only 18. It's a 19. Most of the players are 19 years old, and at this stage, you know, that one year difference does does make quite a difference. But he's he's uh, you know been one of Canada's best players, and to have him back, and it looks like no ill effects too. He moved well. It wasn't like he was kind of protecting himself and, and playing uh, tentatively. He looked really strong, and uh, they're going to need him against the Finns, who 
they're just going to, you know, it's going to be Finland's really stingy team to shut out the U.S. team with all their talent, one nothing, tells you how tough it's mm-hmm. going to be. So, you know, Canada, whose power play has been off the charts, you know, it's probably going to come down to something like that. It'll be razor thin. It'll be a really tough game. But I, I think Canada likes where they are right now. Okay, good news all around, Barry, for Canada. On to the semifinals here now against Finland, as you mentioned. When is that game? Uh, I don't know exactly the time. It's probably going to be either at six at uh, six a.m. or ten a.m. our time. Those have been the, the on Saturday, times. right? On Saturday, on and then Saturday. they turn around. Yeah, and then Sunday, uh, gold medal game. So uh, check your local listings. I did. I have not. Uh, we've been down at Canucks today and. Uh, getting them ready for their game against Blackhawks today. So we haven't had a chance to check out exactly the schedule. Sometimes they will schedule the games depending if the home team is in it. Like the Czechs are playing Sweden right now, probably aren't going to win. So had the Czechs maybe advanced to the semis, they probably would have got the primetime game. But um, it's hard to say. Since Canada played earlier, I would suspect they might be the early game now. Uh, just mm. for rest purposes, because it's uh, they, they try to make it as even as possible. So I would think they will probably play the early one, but don't quote me. Check your local listings. Check local listings. Okay. Yes. Okay. Exciting weekend of hockey coming up. The semis on Saturday, gold medal game on Sunday. Last question for you, Barry. Can Canada go all the way here and win this thing? Do you think they got a oh, shot? I think so. I think it's yeah. pretty wide open. It's, um, you know, Sweden, and it looks like it'll be Sweden and Russia in the other semifinal. And, you know, the Russians did beat Canada badly 6 nothing, but they also lost to the U.S. and to right. the Czech Republic. So, you know, it's uh, all the top teams. It's who brings it the best day, Who maybe whose goaltender is better. Usually comes down, you know, power play is so important, and Canada's power play has been really impressive, really impressive. That was their downfall okay. at the 2019s here last year in Vancouver. They got three power play goals the entire tournament. Uh, they had five in the game against the Czechs in one game alone, and they, they had a couple okay. more today. So I think they have an opportunity to win it all, but, uh, you know, it comes down to, making a big play at the right time. I sound like a coach with all the cliches, but really it's true. (laughs) Okay, good stuff. Go Canada, go. Thanks for that, Barry. You got it, Mike, anytime. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk about the terrible wildfires raging in Australia now. The pictures and video images coming out of Australia look almost apocalyptic. This story has global interest now. One person on the hot seat over these fires, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He says the country's deadly bushfire crisis likely to last for months. Officials in the most populated state, New South Wales, have now declared a state of emergency starting Friday. Morrison says now there is a connection between climate change and natural disasters. I've always acknowledged the link, as has the minister, uh, between the broader issues of global climate change and what that means for uh, the world's weather and uh, the dryness of conditions in many places. But I'm sure you would also agree that no response by any one government anywhere in the world can be linked to any one fire event. All right. Meanwhile, a lot of people, though, extremely upset with the prime minister. While he was touring one of the fire zones, he was met with criticism and insults. Citizens in the town of Cobargo, that's a coastal town between Melbourne and Sydney, told Prime Minister Scott Morrison that he wasn't welcome. How come we only had four trucks to defend our town? Because our town doesn't have a lot of money, but we have hearts of gold, Mr. Prime Minister. Nah, you're an idiot, mate. You really are. You're only getting any votes down here, buddy. You're an idiot. We vote liberal round here. Nobody. No liberal votes. You're out, son. You are out. Good night, Elena. Bye. What about the people who have no way to live? You're not welcome, you f***ing
Every single time this area has a flood or a fire, we get nothing. If we were Sydney, if we were North Coast, we would be flooded with donations, with emergency relief. Oh, wow. Aussie Prime Minister Scott Morrison just getting hammered there by those local citizens. He says he understands why people are upset. Well, I'm I'm not surprised people are feeling very raw at the moment. And that's why I came today, to, to be here, to see it for myself, to offer what comfort I could. But you can't always, in, all, in every circumstance, I think everyone understands that. Okay, let's get an update now. Let's go to Sydney and check in with Josh Bryant. He's a reporter for 2GB Radio in Sydney, where it's early Friday morning. Josh, thanks for doing this. Good morning. Uh, why is the Prime Minister getting so much grief here? Well, so uh, I guess it's it's a bit of a, a complicated uh, sort of issue. It started uh, while this crisis, uh, which has been going for quite some time, uh, he'd sort of uh, been leaving it to the, the state leaders uh, to, to take the front in, in, in addressing these issues uh, as they're the ones in charge of those emergency services. And then uh, unannounced, he went on a holiday to uh, Hawaii and it sort of yeah. took a while for confirmation that that's where he was. Eventually, after mounting pressure, he cut that trip short to come back to deal with some of these bushfires uh, amid that that growing criticism. So already there was this uh, view that he'd been sort of absent and, and not taking the leadership that he he necessarily should have, which is uh, amplified uh, ongoing criticism. Uh, also, there's a, a growing anger about among some about uh, the government's lack of action or perceived lack of action. The government defends their climate change policies, but critics say Australia is uh, still too reliant on coal, both for uh, energy production and and, uh, in terms of industry and exporting uh, coal to the world, and and that not enough is being done to reduce our carbon emissions. Uh, So there's that side of things where where people are just angry that the government and feel like, you know, the evidence of climate change and, and its impact is, is right before us and, and that the, the government's not, not doing enough there. Uh, but when it comes to, to a lot of what these locals seem to have been more angry about specifically is that uh, a lack of uh, resources for the area and government support when they're hit by natural disasters. As you heard, one of the, the residents there saying, you know, if we were on the north coast or if we were in Sydney, we'd be seeing all of this government support coming in and, and they're not getting it. One woman uh, said she would not shake the Prime Minister's hand and that she'd only shake his hand uh, if more funding was given to the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, which is the uh, massive volunteer-powered uh, firefighting service in New South Wales, uh, which uh, fights bushfires and uh, or, or wildfires, if you like, uh, in the state and the ones who have been on the front line. So uh, it's a mixture of a, a perceived lack of, of government support, plus, as I said, that, that broader context of, of that anger elsewhere and around the country uh, when it comes to climate change right. and, and its role in, in this bushfire. Right. Speaking of Josh Bryant from 2GB Radio in Sydney, Australia, speaking of shaking hands with the firefighter, Josh, I saw that video of the Prime Minister trying to shake shake hands with an exhausted firefighter there. It looked like the firefighter didn't want to shake the Prime Minister's hand. That was kind of a cringe-worthy moment for him. I mean, he's just getting hammered here. I mean, is this a big political crisis for him? Uh, it, it, uh, it's certainly an issue that uh, certainly doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. And like I said, uh, 
it's sort of been building since the the, the holiday incident yeah. uh, late last year, and and he really sort of has almost uh, got himself into a, a lose lose situation. People saying he should be on the front lines, but then now if he goes to the front lines, uh, it seems like he's doing that to uh, make amends, but also right. you know he gets criticised for being somewhere that he shouldn't be and, and not letting the firefighters do their jobs and, and he should be getting out of the way and, and, and that sort of thing. So he's sort of got himself uh, well and truly between a, a rock and a hard place here and I just don't see a, a way that uh, he's going to navigate this without getting criticism from, from some groups uh, regardless of, of which way he handles it from here on in. Let's talk a little bit about a current uh, a current update in the situation in the country there, Josh. We've heard a lot about states of emergency being declared. We've seen dramatic photos of people huddled on beaches with fires burning around. We've heard about some military help uh, being deployed as as uh, as well. Can you give us an update on the on the current situation in the on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, obviously, the, recently this week, New Year's Eve, we had the the horror. Uh, fires both in New South Wales and uh, in Victoria and unfortunately they're saying that conditions tomorrow are going to be as bad if not worse. So uh, they're taking the the almost unprecedented step. They've set up what they're calling leave zones. Uh, All of these people, uh, a lot of popular tourist locations have been impacted uh, and not only tourists but locals who aren't prepared to to properly defend their properties. For the last two days uh, they've basically been saying Get out by tomorrow. Don't be there on Saturday. It won't be safe. Uh, There's already these fires there. So massive logistical effort underway. Uh, Huge queues of cars on major roads, that uh, just the roads that are open, just trying to follow that advice, which thankfully thousands of people are, uh, just to to get out of these areas and and staying somewhere else so that they're not in the path of these fires uh, when they're expected to flare in those horror conditions tomorrow. As you said, the Defence Force right now in Victoria, those people... Uh, thousands who, who were sheltering on the beach as fire tore through a town in Victoria. Uh, a massive Navy vessel is slowly beginning the process of uh, taking on board about a 1,000 of those residents. Wow. They'll be taken up the coast uh, by, by Navy ship just because there's really no other way. Some are being uh, charted out with, with private boats, but uh, really the, the way things are, the only way to get them out of that area is on board these boats and doing it by sea. Wow, that is incredible. What a heartbreaking situation here. How is the community responding? I mean, are Australians stepping up to help out people who have been displaced? Absolutely. Uh, we saw uh, there was some, some controversy over the iconic uh, fireworks here in Sydney. Should they be going ahead? Uh, eventually they did, and the commitment was that uh, they would give the information for the Red Cross disaster relief, raising money for those impacted by these bushfires. And they received a massive response uh, from people that the information was shown on the tele- uh, on the broadcast on television and there were donation bins put around all up uh, by New Year's Day. They'd estimated that $2 million had been raised by that effort alone. Uh, we've also got a, a tennis event, a new uh, sort of what they're calling the World Cup of Tennis starting in three cities today uh, and some of the Australian tennis players started this off Nick Kyrgios started with a tweet saying for every ace that he serves this summer, he'll donate $250 to the bushfire relief. Uh, Two other players uh, from Australia have matched that and now organisers of that uh, ATP tennis event have said that $100 for every ace that is served during that event uh, will also be going to bushfire relief. So people are looking at whatever way they can uh, just to to raise that money and give where they can uh, as well as to 
to help out wherever they, they can in terms of getting support to the, the volunteer firefighters as well. Josh, an incredible situation going on in Australia, and it's an, another busy news day for you, I'm sure. Thanks for taking the time for us. Absolutely. Thank you.